0: Son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. And our lesson is in Romans chapter 8 this morning. And while we are going through this chapter, somewhat slowly um, over these last few weeks and even if it were to slow down even more in weeks to come, which is a real temptation right now, but uh, um, I'm hoping that you also hold together that this is one continuous stream of teaching that it's not as though Paul said, Oh, I think I'll talk about hope for a little while. No, now I'll talk about the Holy Spirit for a little while. Now I think I'll talk about intercessory prayer for a little while. Now I think I'll talk about something else. No, it's all one grand sweep. And what Paul is doing is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. The work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us from where we start out in Christ, justified, to where we end up in Christ, glorified. And if you want a definition of sanctification, it is the journey from beginning and justification to the conclusion and the goal of glorification. So that's that's what we're talking about here uh, in this process. And this morning we come to uh, one of the more precious verses in Christian experience. It's one of those uh, verses that you just hang on to um, in in, in many, many circumstances. As, As the choir was just singing a moment ago, we have hope again. Amen. We have hope again. And we'll, we'll, that's sort of what we're talking about this morning. I'm going to start at verse 26 and read through verse 30. But uh, our focus for our thoughts this morning is entirely on verse 28, Romans 8, 28. Some of you already have that rolling in your head just from the address that uh, we give for it. Uh, but I want for us to have it in context. So we start at verse 26. And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this morning I lift up to you those of our fellowship who are struggling, whose lives are in turmoil, Father, those who in the course of things find themselves in the storms and in amidst the waves and the winds. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a great work today to bring such as these who are storm-tossed and in danger of sinking that you would bring them to safe harbor and you would bring us to put the anchor of our lives in Jesus Christ alone. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would help us to let go of the extraneous things of the world that are dragging us down and threaten to drown us, and that we would latch on only to Christ, and that your Holy Spirit taking hold of us would lift us up out of the waves. Father, life in many ways and many times, and just so often is a struggle for us. But, Father, constantly the victory is ours in Christ. And so I pray for the outpouring of your Spirit to work in our midst, to take hold of our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Most envy. In fact, I do envy those of you who maybe are just starting out in the Christian journey. Uh, I've been a believer now for over 50 years, uh, better than a half century. Still ever young, but, uh, uh, but I, I look at those of you who are just starting and there's, there's uh, like that, those opening months or maybe the opening years, and maybe you're just now discovering Romans 8, 28. Maybe you've read it before, but now it's just starting to kick into gear in your life. And for the first time, you're starting to understand that God causes all things, he works all things together for good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's one of the sweet promises of Scripture for us. It's one of those verses that can sustain you your whole life long. It's one of those verses that is so easy to understand and yet takes your whole experience and your whole life to really grasp the depth and the profound nature of that promise. It's a wonderful promise that he says, you know, that that God works and he takes everything in your life. Now think about what that means. He takes all the good things, we pretty much figure that, but he takes all the bad things, that seems incomprehensible, and he works them all together. He is able to piece them together in such a way that at the end of it all, we look back and say, this is a good thing that God has done. God works things together. These things work together for good to those who love him, called according to his purpose. People have experienced this. You go into the Old Testament, you see folks experiencing the promise that we find in Romans 8:28. Uh, I remind you of Abraham. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your hometown. I want you to leave your family. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. Abraham's saying, that's great. God works all things together for good to those who love him. He goes marching off, and he has all these problems with his nephew, with Lot, and arguing about wells, and they're going back and forth. And he says, fine, Lot, you take the one you want. So naturally, Lot, being the mature person that he is, takes the best land, and Abraham is left with the worst land. God, I thought all things worked together for good. It does. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you someone through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, that seems pretty good, God. I'll, I'll go with that. And, and Abraham goes on with his life and nothing happens. And, goes on with his life and nothing happens, and he goes on with his life and nothing's ever going to happen. And so he starts that Eliezer thing where he tries to sort of outmaneuver God and, and bring a, a his own answer to God's <laughs> own promise. And, uh, and, and it's just not working out. But then the day comes and a son is born to him. And Abraham says, you know, if you hang in there long enough, you'll see it. All things work together for good to those who love him. And you're called according to his purpose. But what I want you to understand about the life of Abraham, it wasn't just that, oh, things turned out well for him, and they, they seem to have turned out pretty well for him. It's not just that um, he, he wound up in, in the Bible as one of the heroes of the faith. It's not just that in his life some good things happened. The good that God worked in the life of Abraham is this. God provided a family and then a nation, a people, out of which would come the Messiah. And the good of Abraham's life was that the Messiah would come from Abraham. That was the good that came. And all those other little goods, like getting a homeland and like uh, having a child and a son and all that, those were, those were little goods compared to the bigger good that God used him in the grand sweep of bringing Messiah into history. Think about Joseph. Uh, you probably know the story. It, it was uh, uh, about uh, Joseph and his coat of many colors. He, uh, he was on Broadway for a long time. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but but uh, Joseph uh, grew up in what, I mean, you would be kind to say, a dysfunctional family. He grew up in a family in which he uh, uh, had this, this habit of going to his brothers and saying, you know, in a dream, God told me you would bow down to me. And hey, that's cool, isn't it? And then he couldn't understand why his brothers didn't like him. (laughs) He was daddy's favorite. I mean, there was so much dysfunctionality going on in that family, but uh, God causes all things to work together for good. So Joseph, whose life is going pretty well, goes out to find his brothers. They're tending to the flocks or whatever. And when he gets there, his brothers decide to throw him down a well. Well, first they wanted to kill him, and then they said, oh, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him down a well, and maybe he'll, he'll die uh, on, on his own. And, and so they threw their brother down a well, a, a cistern, a, a big hole in the ground to collect rainwater with a little, little hole in the, in the ceiling there. And Joseph is at the bottom of the well, and he's saying to himself, God causes all things to work together for good. I'm not seeing it. And then he sees a little head poke in, uh, in, in through the, the, the ceiling. He says, Joseph. We're going to pull you out now. Great! God is causing all things to work together for my good. And he comes out and they say, yeah, and we're going to sell you into slavery. Yeah. God works all things together <laughs> for good. And they, so they sell him into slavery. Joseph's got to be saying, you know, I don't see this. How is this working out for my good? I, I just don't see that. But then he gets to where he's going and he's sold to a guy who, uh, potter who, um, uh, brings him into the home, and Joseph goes to work there, and Potiphar recognizes talent, and finally Potiphar says, you know, Joseph, I think I'm going to make you the chief butler of the house. You can run the whole thing. And Joseph saying, this is, this is okay. I mean, if, you, if you're going to be a slave, the, the, be the top slave. Be the slave on top, and uh, and be in charge of everything, and this is like really working out good. God really causes good to come out of all these things that are happening in my life, and just as soon as he says that, Potiphar's wife brings a false accusation with him, and before he knows it, Joseph is sitting in prison. And you know what he's saying? God causes all things to work together. I don't see it. And he stays there, and he meets the the Pharaoh's um, cupbearer and the Pharaoh's baker, and Um, has conversations with them, and and one of them gets out and says, oh, I'll I'll come back and get you a dozen. And so for seven years, he's he's there. Finally, he gets to go in front of Pharaoh because Pharaoh had a dream, and and Joseph said, well, I I can interpret that dream for you. He interprets the dream and says, "You're, you're dreaming about a famine coming, and you need to put away grain for the future and all that other stuff. And Pharaoh looks at him and says, you know, Joseph, I think you would be the best prime minister I could possibly have. I mean, never mind the fact that you were sold into slavery, your brothers didn't like you, you were accused of, 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 um, of, uh, of immoral behavior. In fact, that might qualify you to be a prime minister. But, you know, Pharaoh says, I want you to be prime minister. So now Joseph is prime minister. And I, and I'm, I guess he's still saying, well, God calls all things to work together for good, but maybe he's not saying that right now because of what happened the last time. But as prime minister of Egypt, his brothers come come in to his court. And his brothers are looking for food because there's famine all over. And Egypt's the only only country that has food because they had um, built up a surplus of of grain. And so uh, they come asking for for food. You know the story that uh, Joseph gives grain to his brothers and they they have something to eat. And he, he maneuvers it back and forth in one of those great sagas. And, and finally, the brothers realize who, who this is. This is the brother. They sold him to slavery, and uh, he's there. Now he's prime minister of Egypt. And uh, they're, they're sort of like worried. And Joseph says to him, look, you meant it for harm. You were trying to, to wreck things. You meant it for ill. God meant it for good. Because God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And it's a great story of how that verse was a reality in Joseph's life. But here's the thing. Joseph, as he experienced the elevation from from being sold into slavery to being the prime minister of Egypt, that was a good thing, but it was just the smallest thing in the story. As he was able to supply food for his brothers and be reconciled to him, that was a good thing and a great thing, but it was the smallest thing. The greatest good in that story is this. God worked in Joseph's life to maintain the lineage of Abraham so that his people would inherit the land and be the ones from whom and in whom the Messiah would arise and so that God would eventually send salvation to the world through this action, in part, that Joseph was a part of. That was the greatest good, that God would be glorified in sending the Messiah. You ever think about Moses? I know you do, uh, and you're going to now. Uh, but uh, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in Pharaoh's court. Uh, what had happened was he was born, he was a Jew, and, and uh, uh, he was hidden in the reeds of the Nile River, and, and, and uh, uh, Pharaoh's uh, daughter found him and brought him into the court, and he became this big, big figure in the court. So for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he's got it made. He's got it made. And he's probably saying things like, well, you know, God causes all things to work together for good because look what I got. But after 40 years of that, Moses decides that he's going to take one of those DNA tests on television and so he sends it in and he comes back and he finds out that he's Jewish. Who knew? And when he found out he was Jewish, no. But as a Jew, he's, he's looking at and, and, and what's going on around him. And he sees a Jew and an Egyptian. They're arguing with each other. So Moses steps in and says, these are my people. Never mind, I've never lived with them. <laughs> never, never mind that I've I, you know, I, I really had no contact with them, but they're my people now because I got the DNA test. And so he, he walks up and he kills the Egyptian in favor of the, of the Jew. He says, well, nobody will know. The, the, this Jewish guy, he'll never tell. I was on his side and Nobody will, saw it. No, nobody will ever know about this. Next day, he, he, he finds out everybody knows about this. And so now that everybody knows, Moses says, I've got to hightail it out of here. And so he goes off into the wilderness and lands Midian, and and while he's there, he marries, and he starts working for his father-in-law. And so for the next 40 years, he's out in the wilderness tending his father-in-law's sheep. I mean, talk about a successful life. And that whole time he's saying, I thought all things worked together for good. But one day he... He encounters the burning bush, and through the burning bush, God calls him to a ministry and says, Moses, I want you to go, and, and uh, you're, you're going to be the one. Tell Pharaoh, set my people free. Let my people go. And, and uh, so he goes, and he says, wow, well, you know, this, this is really fantastic. I've, I've got, I've got a, a, an ending shot in at, at my career. And, and, and so he goes, and he's going to liberate the people, and he brings them out of Egypt, and this is going to be great stuff. And for the next 40 years, these people do nothing but grumble and complain and grumble and complain. when they get to the promised land the first time they don't even go in they're so fearful and Moses is stuck wandering around and then finally they're about to enter in after 40 years and God says no Moses not not you I'll let you see it from a mountaintop but not you and I think Moses must have stood on Mount Pisgah and he looked over and he saw the promised land and on balance he said you know I didn't understand what happened in my life. For 40 years I was a playboy. For 40 years I was a working stiff. Now for 40 years I've been the target of grumbling, but I got to see the promised land. And you know, God really does cause all things to work together for good. But the greatest good in the life of Moses was not that he got to see the promised land, that he got to work miracles, that he brought down the law. The greatest good in the life of Moses is that God used him to bring Israel out of bondage back to the promised land, so that his people would be in, in the land He had given them, so that there would be the place where Messiah would come to save a lost humanity. You see this verse, Romans 8:28. It's about God's goodness in all situations. But the greatest good in all situations is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And in point of fact, that is what the verse is actually talking about. Now, look, apply this verse to your life because sometimes you can look and you can see God working and bringing out good in just fantastic ways sometimes you go through a hardship or a trial sometimes you go through a time of illness and and setback sometimes the water comes and it floods out the house and then the insurance agent tells you that well you know there's a difference between groundwater and rainwater and you got the wrong kind of water and we're not paying off you know that, that kind of thing sometimes happens and when you get through to the other side of it you look back and you say well you know I realize now God was teaching me a lesson he was showing me something about faith. He was showing me something about grace and something about reliance upon him. He was teaching me a lesson so that I could give a testimony to others to encourage them in the same kind of situation. You might look back and say, you know, I don't know how I got through it, but God brought me through it, and I feel as though I'm stronger today because I know I'm weaker and relying upon the power of God, and so you, you come out on the other side of it better than you ever did before. And it's a wonderful promise, and, and God works in this ways, and by his grace, he lets us see his working for our good so many times. But if you live the Christian life long enough, you come to understand you don't always see it. You don't always get it. I was looking through the Old Testament trying to find uh, examples of this, and I came across a guy by the name of Uriah, You know who Uriah was. He was the husband of Bathsheba. Uh, and uh, he was off to battle. He was doing what he ought to do. He was a good soldier. He was loyal to his king. He was off to battle. And while he was off to battle, King David came in and stole his wife. And when she got pregnant, David didn't want anybody to know, so he brought Uriah back so he could sort of like blame the baby on him. You get the drift. And when he, when, when he told Uriah, you know, go, go spend the night with your wife, and, and Uriah said, look, my soldiers are out in the field, and they... They are struggling and suffering. I will not go into my wife as long as my soldiers are out in the field because my heart's with them. He did the right thing. David was a little frustrated by that. And so he sent down orders. He said, look, what I want you to do is order a suicide attack. Order an attack against a wall that you know is going to fail, and I want you to put Uriah at the front of it, and he's going to lead this attack. And Uriah gets these orders. And he says, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to obey my king. And I'll do as he asked. And Uriah at the head, through no fault of his own, through nothing but righteousness of his own, winds up being killed in battle because David designed it that way, essentially murdered by King David. And here's what happened. David gets to be the king. Uriah gets to be the corpse. And we go to Uriah and say, you know God causes all things to work together? for together. There's something called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's a book about those believers in Jesus Christ who gave their lives because of their faith. And all the while you're looking at that and saying, where was the good? They died for this. But look at, look at Paul, look at Peter, look at the, the great saints of the, of the New Testament. Jesus said, look, in this world you have tribulation. So evidently, Romans 8.28 isn't a guarantee that no matter what happens, you're gonna come out better off than you started. It's, it's not that no matter what happens, if you know you're gonna come out with a little more money or a little more um health or a little more this or that. Evidently, Romans 8.28 is about something much bigger than that. Because Romans 8.28 is not about optimism, it's about reality. It's about reality. See, too many of us take Romans eight twenty-eight and you say, well, that, that's just a verb about optimism. I'm just going to be optimistic. You know, no matter what happens, well, you know, God causes all things to work together for good, and so I'll be better off a little while, it, it'll all go away. And sometimes it doesn't go away. Sometimes the cancer kills you. Sometimes the prodigal child never comes home. Sometimes the business partner who left with all your money and left you with the bills never comes back. Sometimes it's pretty hard. You know, there's a strain of preaching now in, in the churches, uh, um, and it goes something like this, that, you know, no matter what's happening in your life, God wants to bless you, and so all you need to do is just, just hunker down and, and maybe believe a little harder, just have positive thoughts, Don't let negativity surround you. Always be with positive people. Never give in to your fears. Always go for your dreams. Open up your life. God will lead you to the next level. What they don't tell you, sometimes the next level is heaven, you know, and uh, and you die in the process. That's optimism, but that's not realism. Here's the realism. Realism to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, to to believers, God takes every part of your life, everything that happens, and he works it together and meshes it together so that he will be glorified and he will be honored. This is a verse that really cries out for the context. I want want to just remind you of the context because we've been covering it these last several weeks um it started in verse 17 where he says look we are heirs with christ joint heirs with christ we we get the inheritance with him but look what that means is we suffer with him so that we might be glorified with him you you remember that just look at your bibles there in verse 17 that we may also be glorified we suffer with him that suffering is a part of the christian life then he goes on to say, but I, I consider that the sufferings that are ours, they don't compare to the glory that's on its way. The suffering that's coming, that doesn't compare to the glory that will be ours. You know that glory, you know, someday we will be up there in heaven. I've, I can't prove this from Scripture, but I think we're going to start swapping stories. It's going to go, it's under the title of Worthy is the Lamb who's slain. Worthy as a lamb, because let me tell you what happened. In my life, the people, the government, the persecution, came the moment where I was on the menu for the lions. And I didn't even get to be the main course like a polycarp. Those of you who know polycarp know what I'm talking about. I had to be just an hors d'oeuvre, somebody nobody ever heard of ever again. My life was given to the lions, but I'm here to tell you God was faithful through the whole thing. I didn't get a chance to tell you then. I want to tell you now. Worthy is this lamb who was slain because when the lions came at me, he embraced me and took me to himself. I think we're going to start telling stories about about, uh, loved ones who struggled and suffered, and we'll tell the story of how how we prayed for their healing, but the cancer kept getting worse and worse, and and, uh, it's almost like cancer toys with you. It always makes you think you're getting better before the end. But we're going to tell the story that you know the cancer took the body but the lamb took her soul body's buried over there but she's with jesus now and god causes all these things he takes them all and he works them together for good and for his glory you see the The suffering now isn't worth comparing to the glory. Now, it's hard to hang on to that, and that's why Paul said, well, you know, we don't know how to pray as we are but we need the Holy Spirit. Help us in our weaknesses. Help us in those times where we can't quite see it. Help us in those times we don't know what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit will make intercession for us, will pray for us with with a meaning and groanings that are so deep and so profound. You can't put human language on it, but God who knows the heart, he knows the spirit, he knows the mind of the spirit because the Holy Spirit prays according to the will of God. And we looked at that last week, and that's, that's the prayer that we need. So in that context, that we suffer for the sake of the glory. The glory is bigger than the suffering. In our weaknesses, the Holy Spirit gets us through that and intercedes for us. And in that context, we know the following. To those who love God, and that's a, um, a present tense in the Greek, to those who are loving God, to those whose lives have been Um, just engaged with God, have been brought to God, are connected with God, those who have a passion for who God is and for his glory. Not that we love God in order to gain this marvelous promise, but this promise is ours because God has planted in our hearts to love him. To those who love him that way. And it's a, the other way he describes it, he says, to those called according to his purpose. The word for purpose there is a word, uh, prothesis, it, it means to set something down ahead of time. Uh, the, the, the picture is that God had the plan ahead of time, and he called us according, according to the purpose of his plan. And those who love him and those who are called according to the plan, in those lives, we know that all things work together for good and for the glory of God. You remember the time that um, Jesus was talking to Peter? It was right before uh, Jesus was arrested. He said, Peter, Satan has demanded you. Uh, that, that's the word. He, he has demanded you. He has demanded that he sift you. I mean, it's bad enough to think that Satan gets a hold of you, but what does it mean for Satan to sift you? You know, to put you in that little little flower thing and just drive you through those little teeny tiny holes." And, you know, it can be done, but you get cranky when it happens. But, he, but, you know, Satan has demanded you to sift you. And then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. I can just hear Peter say, you prayed for me, Jesus? Great! You told Satan to leave me alone, didn't you? You rebuked him in your name, didn't you? You stood up and named, claimed victory, didn't you? You decided that Satan would have no hold over me, didn't you? Jesus, when you prayed for me, didn't you pray that Satan wouldn't leave me alone and I would have nothing but good things in my life? Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith would not falter and fail. So Peter, I didn't pray that you'd be delivered from going through it. I just prayed that your faith would get you there. Let me tell you something, by the way. When Jesus prays, God answers. (laughs) And Peter got through it. He stumbled a lot but all these things work together for good because they brought glory to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, that's what's going on in life. That's the, the greatest thing going on in this verse. And so, what I wanted for us to see is that as much as we love Romans 8:28, oh, everything will be fine. It's not a verse about optimism. It's not a verse about just, you know, just look up when things are bad. I mean, I, I love optimistic people. I need optimistic people. I am not an optimistic person. You now, somebody says, Hey, beautiful day today, I say, Yeah, it'll get worse tomorrow. I mean, that's my nature. I need somebody who says, "You know, it's storming out there, but the sun come up tomorrow, we're going to be fine." Of course, they need me too, but that's another story. But I love optimistic people, but the gospel isn't about being optimistic. The gospel is about being realistic. And the reality is the glory of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Romans 8:28 is more about God's glory than it is about our happiness. It's more about God getting all the praise and all all the honor and all the adoration. It's not really about us getting what we want and everything working out fine today in my life. Things may work out fine. Like I say, sometimes God delivers. Sometimes he sets us free. Sometimes he does all that. But that's just to give us a foretaste Of the greater glory we'll have with him someday you know on that day when we'll say you know he really does all things well you know he really has worked thing all 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 things out for good this is a good thing that cancer has been cured by the blood of the lamb this is a good thing that we have walked out of the wheelchairs And they're just there at the door to remind us of how great God's grace is. We're going to get together and say how marvelous it is that we do not tremble for Parkinson's, but Parkinson's trembles at the name of Jesus. We will get together and we will talk about how the the, the problems and and the setbacks, how the hopelessness and the despair of depression is no more, but there's only the bright sunshine fulfilled hope in Jesus Christ, and we'll look back upon those days in the dark valley and we'll say, you know, those were miserable, terrible times, but I give God the glory for them because he brought me through them and up here to his glory, and we remember them only for the sake of giving glory to the Lamb. Oh, that day's coming, and when it comes, the only thing we'll remember about Alzheimer's is that it is no more. The day's coming when every tear will be dry. The Bible says God himself will wipe away every tear, caress your face in his hands, and with the glory and the tenderness of his thumb, he'll wipe away the last tear you'll ever, ever cry. And in that day, we shall say, God caused all things to work together in a way we couldn't understand then and we're just beginning to understand now and we will take all eternity to praise him for that he works all things together for good and he did it by his grace and his mercy. You see, Romans 8.28 is much bigger than you ever thought. It's much grander, much deeper, much much more profound than you ever thought. So I want you to latch on to it this week. I want you to take Romans eight twenty-eight with you. God causes or God works all things or all things work together for good. A lot of different ways translated comes down to this. Whatever happens in your life, God is able to use it for his glory. And he will. Just look heavenward and love him all the more and follow the purpose he has for your life. The rest of the chapter develops what that purpose is. We're going to be looking at that for the next two or three months. Honestly, honestly folks, I thought, I thought Romans 8 was going to be three sermons and it's, it's been more than that, um, but, but it, it just draws it out, it, it's like Romans eight twenty eight 28 is, is the theme verse for the rest of the chapter just about, just the, the theme verse for the rest of the chapter that's what we'll be looking at, but, but just remember in your life all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together. Father, we don't understand it, but we don't need to understand it. We don't always see it. We don't need to see it. Father, we can't explain it. We don't need to explain it. All we know is the reality of your grace in our lives and the trustworthiness of your promises to us. And so this morning, I ask your Holy Spirit would just invade every heart in this room this morning and give to each one the boldness to latch on to who you are and what you are doing and to realize your glory is greater than whatever is going on in our lives. And, Father, that we would be brought to your throne for all eternity to sing your praises. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name.